everybody doing today? Good, good. We're going to be in James chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there, James chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. I don't know if I can live up to all that Ben has played up there. That was, that was uh, he's, I'm going to have to pay him later for all those lies. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I do have to say, I am very thankful for, for, for your pastor. He has um, just been a blessing to me. Um, I did not, uh, I did not have a lot of close friends grow, growing up. I just didn't have a lot of close friends. And uh, when I came to school and, and at Southeastern and met Ben and a couple other guys, uh, I actually got to experience what it was really like to have a close, close friend. And then he is one of the closest friends that I've ever had. Uh, just one of those people you can go months at a time and not, not talk to him, pick up the phone and talk for an hour, and it's like you didn't even stop talking. You know, if you have one of those, it's a blessing from God to have a person like that. So I'm very thankful for your pastor. Um, he's helping me out so much. I mean, in so many ways, just like he said, I've helped him. He's helped me out tremendously, uh, especially uh, just learning from him about being a church planner. Uh, this was just, I've, I remember when this church was just an idea that he had, uh, him and Jeff just moved to Greenville and uh, decided to, to plant a church um, and just, you know, Lone Ranger, <laughs> Mr. Ben, you know, and, and there's just so much that he's taught me about that and watching his perseverance and just, I'm so excited to see you here and I've heard so many stories, so many great things that God has done uh, and this group of people who are now the body of Christ in, in Greenville, North Carolina. I'm so excited about that and happy to be here. Um, and I just, I'm thankful for all the influence that he's sharing with me and teaching me about being a church planner as I, we, we prepare to go to Chicago. Um, uh, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, one of the things that Ben and I have talked about uh, many a times is uh, he says I got it easy. Uh, moving to the Midwest or moving, you know, north north from here because his argument is harder to plant a church in the South. That's what he says. Uh, and I, I, I see, I, I agree with him. The more and more I thought about that, you know, it is a, it is a tough place uh, to plant a church. And one of the main reasons why is because of the view of faith um, that we have here in the South. Um, sadly, uh, faith is a, uh, it's a cultural thing. Because the gospel had saturated the South so much, um, it's not uncommon to run across people who say they believe in Jesus and they, they know Jesus died on the cross for their sins. But yet there is no evidence of that in their life whatsoever. They don't go to church or, or even they may go, but um, that, that belief doesn't impact them. Um, it's more of a cultural idea. You say, so, so when did you get saved? You know, did, when, you, when did you come to faith? Oh, I've always been, I've always been a part of the faith. I, I grew up that way, you know. And so, you know, right then when you hear that answer, you know, you should, as a person who wants to share the gospel, you should go, wait a minute. What, what do you mean you've always been that way? Because you can't always be that way. You're not born a Christian. You must become one. You must be changed to that. And so there's this cultural way that, that the South thinks that it's just part of who I am. You know, it's, uh, it's very, uh, it looks very much like the, the Catholic Church. And they're born into the Catholic Church and they're always a Catholic. Um, that's, that's kind of the way the South is with um, uh, the way we believe about Christianity. And that's a sad thing that, that it's that way. It, but it's also that way around the, around the country. It's not just about Christianity. It's just about faith. Um, what's happened in our culture and, and one of the reasons why I think that 
this passage is so uh, important for us today is because when you look at our culture and uh, what's happened uh, because of the postmodern influence into our culture, people just say, you know, faith is just, you know, you have faith and I have faith. It's a personal thing. It's something that I have that you can't, you can't, um, you can't come tell me what I need to believe, what I should believe, and let's don't go share it with everybody. Let's just keep it to ourselves. That's a private matter. It's, it's something that I believe. And it, it's, it's that postmodern thought that um, when, I, when I say the word postmodern, I mean people say your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And uh, you can't tell me that my truth is not my truth because I'm the one that decides that. It's a subjective thing. Well, the problem is with that is when, when your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, then just, you know, they, they disagree with each other and we say, okay, well, that's your truth. There's no such thing as truth. Okay, there's, if, if that's the case, there's no such thing as truth because it's totally subjective. And so um, that has traveled into the way we think about faith, you know. Well, it's your faith and my faith. There, there's no such thing as this one faith that everyone must believe in or this one God, or this one true way to salvation, there's, there's lots of different ways. There's many ways to get there. And so you can't tell me that what I believe is wrong. And so it just turns into a, just a bunch of different opinions about it, is all it is. And it doesn't really impact the way you live. Um, a perfect example of that is um, uh, the 12-step program. Um, as myself, a, a former drug dealer and, and, and alcoholic, uh, what God you know, changed me from, I went to NA and AA on a regular basis, uh, actually prescribed by the law to go <laughs> uh, many, many times. Uh, they told me I had to. Uh, anyway, uh, long story, I'll tell you about it if you want to know. Um, but I learned the, the 12-step program uh, um, very well, backwards and forwards. And one of those steps is that you acknowledge a higher power. Uh, that you acknowledge that there's a higher power. You submit to that higher power. And that higher power is going to help you uh, to, to follow through with these steps. But they don't specify who this higher power is, right? It can be whoever you want it to be. I actually had a guy tell me it could be a chair. I mean, he actually said, I was like, so who is this? You know, I was argumentative. But uh, he's like, you know, oh, it could be that chair if you wanted to be. I, I thought that was just completely stupid at the time. Uh, it is. Um, and so that's just a perfect example of that. Another example is, um, uh, and this is um, a very influential person you would all know, Oprah Winfrey. Um, very influential in this society. Um, and also a Chicago native. She owns an entire block in Chicago. So I got to keep, keep tabs on what's going on with Oprah so I know what's going on there. Anyway, um, one of the things that happened with Oprah is uh, she tells the story about how she became famous. And she uh, was, was trying out for the part in The Color Purple. And some of you may be too young to remember that movie. And, um, but anyway, it's, it's, I, I think I'm too young to remember the movie. It's a long time ago. Anyway, um, uh, she was trying out for that part. And that part was what got her famous. That was the big part that just sprung her career. And she just, you know, got famous from there. Um, and one of the things she was doing was she was... Um, she was freaking out about whether she was going to get this part, and she was, she was running around this track. She tells the story that she was singing, um, I surrender, I surrender all to Jesus. All to Jesus, I surrender, I surrender all. Right? She was singing that hymn, and the story goes that someone yelled to her and said, hey, you've got a phone call, and she goes to get the phone call, and it's the, dire- it's the director saying, you've got the part. 
And so she attributes that, that she was, you know, giving her all to Jesus and God gave her that part and that's how she, you know, became famous. Well, if you listen to her public statements and the things that she says, you hear the same view of faith come forth of what I'm talking about. Well, there's a lady in, in one of the, you can see this clip on YouTube, it's where I saw it, lady in her uh, audience, uh, they're talking about faith, and one of the ladies said, you know, Jesus is the only way to salvation, he's the only way to God, and she just basically, you know, shared the gospel, and um, Oprah said, no way, that's not possible that that's true. There are millions of people, there must be millions of ways. God. And, and it doesn't matter whether you call him God or she didn't even say him. She said, I don't care whether you call it God or a light. As long as you have faith, you're good. So as long as you have that. So it's just this, this, this belief system that I have that I set aside in this compartment and I, I, I put it in the back of my head. It's what I, um, what I call my, my God or my, my faith but it has nothing to do with the way I live my life. It does not impact the way I make my decisions, the way I spend my money, the way I treat other people, the way I raise family. It does not impact my life decisions. And it just doesn't impact me. It's just something I believe. And when we talk about belief, we'll talk about it. But any other time, it's not in the forefront of our minds. And so that is what our society Believes about faith is just this intellectual assent that I have of this belief system. And it has nothing to do with my life. Well, James has some harsh words to say to that type of thinking. And let's see what he has to say. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, is dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your your word, Lord. Thank you that you have given us your word um, to teach us and to change our hearts. 
Lord, help us to be more like you. Help us to open up our hearts today and hear what you have to say to us. That you would move in us and convict our hearts of where we are with you. That you would move us closer to you. That you would change us and transform us more and more each moment. Lord, we desperately need you. And I desperately need you right now to share this message, Lord. May your name be made great. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this passage, <clears throat> one thing I want you to notice as he begins, well, first, let's, let's look at this. He's, he's, I'm taking this passage right in the middle of James. So we kind of got to see this, what James is doing. He's, he's sharing this, this, this letter with the dispersion is what he calls them. They're um, those who have been dispersed uh, throughout the, the, the land there uh, around Jerusalem. And um, uh, he, is, he is writing this letter to them um, to challenge them on their faith and where they are. Um, he's writing this to a, a more Jewish uh, uh, hearing. Um, those who would be rereading this would be a more Jewish background. So a lot of the things that he's going to say and some of the things that we'll talk about today are from that Jewish culture. But in, the, in chapter 1, he talks about the testing of their faith. He talks about how, how God is, is testing it and to see where it's at and whether they're stable or unstable. Uh, he talks about how they need to be doers of the word, how they can't just hear that word, but they also need to be doing it. They need to be actually acting upon that, which is uh, uh, which lines up completely with what he says in, the, in our passage today. But then he deals with a certain sin that's going on in, in some of these churches. He's heard that there are people who are um, showing partiality, some people, and to the rich and not to the poor. And he's actually saying to them, you know, what are you doing? Um, you're treating these people better. You're giving them the best seats in the house. You guys come up, sit up front. You know, these are your seats because you're rich. And, you know, the poor people, you guys can sit over there on the sides or back in the back. You know, this is totally my version of this. But um, that's, that's kind of what he's saying. You know, y'all come to the prominent seats. Um, I guess as Baptists, we might say in the back would be the prominent seat. But anyway, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, he's, saying, he's saying you're showing partiality to them, and that's not the gospel. You know, the gospel makes the, 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 the ground level. There is no partiality that you should show whether poor or rich because it's nothing that you've done that's brought you to Jesus. Jesus brought you to himself. He's the one that's changed you. He's the one that's done everything for you. You know, so you can't show that. He's calling them out on the sin. And so when he does that, then he comes to the point of asking them, okay, so what kind of faith do you really have? You know, that's where he's at when we get into this passage. So just to give you a little background. So I want you to see specifically something that he says um, in verse 14, the very beginning, he says, What good is it, my brothers? And I think it's very key for us to see how he starts this off. Because what he says from here on is going to sound very judgmental, uh, very rough. It's going to hurt. And he starts off with brothers. A very loving, caring term to them. He starts off with love. And so no matter how you share this message, however you relate this to other people, because that's really one of the things I want you to see from this is this is something that we need to challenge people on who have that view of faith that I've been talking about. No matter how that happens, you want to do it with love. You know, and, and you can just, you know, some people will say they're being loving, but they're being harsh. 
But I'm telling you that this is a love for people because you care about where they are and what their relationship with God is. Okay? So you care about them. Not just you care that you get, you check off a box that you told somebody about Jesus today. But know that you care about their soul and you want to see them change and you want to see them have a relationship with God as you do because of Christ. And so he loves these people and he's telling them, you got to watch out for having this fake faith, this false faith that you may have. So I want to challenge you on that. So he's telling, he's telling them to be loving when he gives them that, that, that brothers, my brothers. And he says, if someone has faith... But does not have, someone says he has faith but does not have works. Now notice that. He says that they say they do. They don't, he didn't say they have it. They say they have it. But they have not works. Can that faith save them? So he's contrasting this idea that there is a true faith, that there's an authentic faith, and there's a faith that does not save, that is useless. And he uses an illustration here. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? The situation is, in Judea, there were many famines in this time. As James is writing this passage, there's lots and lots of famines. And there's lots of people who would be coming to their church who would, who would be lacking in food. Who would not be able to put food on the table. Who would not be able to put clothes on their backs, their children's backs. They, they were not able to do that because they were poor. And so he's saying to them, what are you doing for them? Now, he doesn't give them the out to say, we can't feed everybody. He doesn't give them that because he says it's a brother or sister. So he's actually talking about the church people. The people who are members of this body of Christ are coming and are in need. So I'm not ta- he's not talking about everyone. He's not saying feed the whole world. Because he knows that's not possible for those churches to do. He's saying specifically, are you taking care of your own? Are you loving on those who are part of this body? Are you giving them the things that they need? And, and this is, this is a, this is a real, real thing that could be happening right here in this room. And there could be people here with the, with the economic situation that we're in and those gas prices being the way they are. I mean, it's very real. That there are people possibly here today that have a trouble paying their bills, trouble putting food on the table, trouble clothing their children. And so this is a real thing that could be happening even here. So he's asking this question, what are you doing with it? And these people are saying, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And when I hear that, I think, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you. That's what I hear when I hear that. Because that's, that's what I think our language is for that. I'll pray for you. And, you know, it's sad, but it's true. And I, and I am guilty, okay? I'm not saying over here and going point my finger at you. I am guilty of saying I will pray for you, brother, and not doing anything about my brother and sister's need. When I have something to give, and I have something I could share with them, I'd love to invite them for dinner, I have things that I could do, but I don't, you know? And, and he's saying, is it showing up? This faith that you have in Christ, is it showing up in the way you treat people? What good is it if it's not? What good is it if it's not? And he says that it's dead if it doesn't. So, as he moves on, he's, he talks about this, this argument that is, uh, there's an argument brought to him. It says, but someone will say. 
This is one of the more difficult verses in this, this passage of understanding exactly what's going on. Um, it even gets kind of confusing just reading the English of how this works. But um, you have faith and I have works. So who's talking? I'll be honest with you. The commentators wrote all kinds of stuff about who's talking where. Um, who's the you? Who's the I? Who's saying what? But James's, James's point here, when he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's trying to tell this person who's, who's bringing this argument. They're bringing the argument that you have a faith, you have a lot of faith, and that's your gift. That's the type of gift that you've been given. I have a gift of works. That's what I do, you know. And so you, you have this faith and I have works, so we can separate those out as if they're two different types of gifts. And, and James is saying, that's not, you can't separate these out, okay? This is not, this is not a, a place where you can say these two gift things. He says at the last, the last verse, you look at what he says. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He's saying that if you don't have these works, it's just like a dead man laying there. If you don't have these things that show up in your life because you've been changed by Jesus, then then it's not real. It's not alive. You're not alive in Christ. You're just a dead man. Because you don't have these things that accompany that. You can't separate them is what he's trying to say. You can't bring that argument that that's just your gift and my gift. You must have something that shows that there's a real change in your life. And so that's, he just breaks that one down. And he says, you believe that God is one. Now this right here, this is, this is like punching a Jewish man in the face. Okay, I'm just going to tell you, this is tough what he says right here. All right? He, because when he says you say that God is one, he's, he's, there's no doubt he's looking at Deuteronomy 6.4 where it says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then it goes on, that's called the Great Shema is the name of it. And they, they would actually repeat this on a daily basis with their children. Uh, any Orthodox Jew would still be doing this to the de- today. Um, it's what they would do on a regular basis. Okay? So that's the, that's the key passage of teaching in the law in Deuteronomy. Uh, that they would continually go over and over and over. So when he says this, he says, You say the Lord your God is one. And he says, You do well. It's such a sarcastic, you do well. It's got to be because of what he says right after that. You do well. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe what you're saying is true. Because they know. I don't forget reading a C.S. Lewis uh, book, uh, Screwtape Letters. He talks about um, one, of the, one of the passages he talks about. He's, he's writing it from a demon's perspective. It's an interesting book. And uh, you hear they, them talk about, they're trying to distract the guy from praying. You know, they, they want the, this, this person, um, trying, this one demon is the uncle demon is trying to get the younger one to, uh, to, to help him to mess this Christian up. And he's trying to stop him from praying. And in the middle of that, he's sharing, he's like, they don't see what we see. And he just talks about how amazing and how brilliant. And he's talking about how horrible it is to see God in all of his glory. And that these demons see this. That they know that God is one. They know who he is because they can't help but see him. Because they're in that spiritual realm. And they, uh, it was just, it's just an interesting picture. But 
the demons know who he is. And there's no doubt about that. They know the wrath that is going to be poured out on them when the end comes. They know this God. And they shudder. There's an action that comes from their knowledge. They shudder at who he is. And he's saying, you, you, you people want to recite this thing over and over again. And it doesn't even affect you. But look at the demons who are, there's no chance for them. They've turned their back on God. They will be punished. And they still, but they know, they know better than you. Who say that you follow. I mean, it's just a, it's tough words for those who would, who would be repeating that. And even for us. Um, as we don't think about the greatness of God and who he is. Um, so he goes on and he talks about this, this intellectual ascent. That's, that's kind of what he's saying is you have this idea, what I spoke about in the beginning, that, that you, you believe in, that you trust in. I think about Nicodemus um, when he came to Jesus. He knew who the Messiah was. He knew that there was a Messiah to come. He had an idea that this was Jesus. And he comes to him and what does Jesus say to him? You must be born again. So this knowledge that Nicodemus had of who the Messiah was and that Jesus was him was not enough. There had to be a moment in Nicodemus' life where he changed, where he was different from that moment on, where he, he became a different person. And that only happens when God does that in you. When Jesus comes and changes your heart and makes you a different person, you, that only happens through God's power and Him working in you to do that. And so <clears throat> that's this, this transformation that has to happen in order for these works to follow. And so he goes on to talk about uh, his two witnesses, what I like to call this part of this. He says, um, do, you want, do you want me to show you, you foolish person, the faith is apart from works is useless? He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, now look at the language here. You see the faith that was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted in his righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, I'll just give you a little bit of chronology uh, in the chronological order of what happened there. Okay, he's talking about compl- two completely different events, 25 years apart from each other. But he just put them together in one passage. Okay, in the beginning, he's talking about Abraham and Isaac. And I- Isaac is his, his miracle son that was born in his old age. And he takes Isaac, God tells him to take him, take his son up on Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him for me. Okay, I want you to sacrifice him. To me. And so Abraham takes Isaac in the wood and they climb that mountain and he takes Isaac. Isaac even asks, Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God's going to provide, son. And he takes him up on that mountain and he straps him to that altar and he pulls out a knife and he gets ready to cut his own son's throat. And as as a father, I go, How in the world would he be able to do that? I mean, how in the world could he do that? And, and we know the rest of the story is, of course, he doesn't kill Isaac. God, God um, has a, a ram in the thicket, and, and the angel says, don't do it. Wait, stop. Uh, don't do it. We, I now know that you believe. 
Well, that's a very important phrase. He says, I now know that you believe. But when he's talking, when James talks about it, he's talking about chapter 15, which is chapter 22 is where I was. That's, that's Isaac in Genesis 22. And in Genesis chapter 15, that's where God comes to Abraham and says the covenant and does the whole um, uh, explaining what he's going to do with Abraham and how he's going to make him the father of many nations. And he gives him all the blessings that he's going to give him. And it says right there that Abraham says uh, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And so James is saying Genesis 15 is where Abraham was changed. That's where Abraham believed God and trusted God and Abraham was changed. He was transformed. And Genesis 22 is where he lived it out. It's where he walked up on that mountain and he was able to do what he was going to do because God was moving in him to do what he did. There's no way Abraham was willing to kill his son that way and give up his only son without God's help for him to be able to do that. Without God working that through his life and that work being produced by the faith that he had. That's James's point. Abraham couldn't do it without him. That's a real faith. Is that there's something that's produced from it. Then he, once again, is very harsh to those who would be um, from the Jewish background. When he calls his next witness to the stand and says, and consider Rahab. Because he just talked about the father of all of, of, of the Jewish faith. And then he turns around and talks about a Gentile prostitute. And he said, look at her faith. And he just slapped him. You know, I mean, that was just a, that was a tough one to hear. Um, and he says that she was justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Now, notice he says that they were justified. Now, he's using that word a little bit different than Paul would. Of course, Paul is going to say justified is when you're, you know, saved and that that's when your transformation happened. And then, you know, we believe it's justification and we move to sanctification and we're growing in Christ. And then glorification comes when we come and, and uh, are called up with Christ and, and at Judgment Day. Um, so he's using the word justified as, as validity. That it's validating your faith. So that's the way he's using that term. So that's, that's kind of why like Martin Luther, when he looked at James, he's like, I don't know about that book. Because he sees that word justification, he's like, wow, how do you use it that way? But it's all about context and who he's talking about and who he's talking to. And so he's using that word in a different way to really validate the faith of Rahab. That Rahab was willing to lay down her life and put it on the line for these two guys that she didn't know. Who came from this, this country that follows this God that they'd heard about. This is the time is uh, Israel's coming across the Jordan. They actually haven't crossed the Jordan yet. They're on one side of the Jordan. They're on their way. And everybody's heard about what they've done, about the Red Sea parting, about how they destroyed all the kings on the other side of the Jordan. And everyone on this side in Jericho, which is where Rahab is, they hear about this God and this people who follow this God, and they're tearing everybody up. And it don't matter how big your army is, they're rocking their world. Right? And it doesn't matter. I mean, it's, and, and so they hear it, and, and, and Rahab tells those spies in the story that their hearts are melting from hearing about the story of this God and what he's doing to these people. And so Rahab hears about this God, and she says, that's the real one. That's the real God. 
this God that this, this, this city I'm in, they follow, that's not real. I've never heard of anything like that. But that God that those people follow, that's the God of the earth. He is the living God, and I want to serve Him. And so she does it. Because she believes in that God, it produces immediately faith that happens. And, I mean, works that come from that faith that she risks her life and brings those, those spies into her house where those people in that town could have killed her, her whole family. And she hides them and then sends them out a different way and then tells the people in the city that, oh, they went that way, you know. So she lays her life on the line and her family's life on the line because of this God. So her faith is worked out. And so, James is painting this picture of what it looks like to actually have these type of works. To actually live this out. And one of the reasons why this is an important passage to me um, is because I think a lot of times, like I said, in the South, people grow up and they think they're a Christian. They grow up and they think they're a believer. And that was me. I, 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 I grew up as a... Um, as a, a child in a house that went to church. Um, but there was actually a time where I said, you know, I'm going to make a decision. Because I'm, I'm follow, I was at this youth camp and, and there was a lot of people there. And there's a lot of emotional pull. Man, they were up on the stage going, come up here and follow Jesus. You know, and they're, I mean, they're trying to get you to walk the aisle. You know, they were all about it. And, you know, right here, come pray and give your life. And, and, and I, I, in an emotional moment, I walked that aisle when I was 14 years old. And I went down there, and there was my, my pastor's son, just happened to be one of the counselors. And I went in this back room, and, and he went through the, pr- the Lord's Prayer. And I prayed that prayer, and, you know, I, I said this stuff, and, and it didn't work. <laughs> it did not work. <laughs> I was just tell you right now. Uh, I said all that stuff in the right part of the room, in the right place, and th- those words aren't magical. They're not. I just tell you, as a witness, they're not. Um, I did not get saved. And it was funny that I thought I was. I thought I was. And so I, when, I, when I was telling you about being at the NA and the AA place, I was arguing with a guy about the chair. And it can't be my higher power. I was actually arguing with him that Jesus was God. I was actually telling him Jesus is the only way and he's it. There's no other way to God. I was telling this man this. And there was no way I was saved. Because my life was a wreck. I was selling weed. I was eating as much acid as I could eat. You know, I actually came to this town. The only reason I've ever came to this town before Ben moved here was to party in this town. That's why, because, you know, that's the, you know, the story about ECU. You come here to party, right? Um, that's what they, they, I always heard that growing up in Thomasville on the other side of the state. I knew that. So that's why I came here, to do that. And that was my life. That was what I lived for, was just getting high and partying all the time, all the time. For seven years of my life, that's what I did. And then God, using the long arm of the law, uh, decided to put me in some places where I had time to think. Um, I actually went to a halfway, I mean, a halfway house, but I went there. I also went to a, uh, it was like a boot camp. You ever seen those boot camps? You know, they show the, the guys do push-ups all day and wear army clothes and they, they yell at them. Uh, I went to one of those. Um, and that's where I got saved. That's where God really changed my heart. Um, and I prayed that day. I said, I just give up. I give up. I felt like God was just chasing me. It was nothing I could do. I just had to, I had to give up. And he, he changed me. 
But what's weird is, because I grew up in this culture, I did not understand that that's what happened. I did not understand. I said, oh, I rededicated my life. That's what I said. I actually told the guy that I rededicated, I rededicated my life to Jesus. You know? And so I went on to, to, for six more years, telling this testimony. I got saved when I was 14. I walked away from God and lived this atrocious life that I lived. And then at 21, I gave my, I gave my heart back to Jesus. I, I rededicated my life. And it wasn't until actually, um, I think you might have been on that youth retreat. But there was a youth retreat. I think Ben and I did it together, our youth groups together. I was a youth pastor. And a good friend of ours named Mike Kwiatkowski, he just called me out. He's like, man, that's just, the Bible doesn't say that. That's just not possible. He said, you can't live like that and be a believer. You can't do that. And he said, you need to go read 1 John. And that's where he sent me. And 1 John says a lot of these same things that James said. You just need to go read it. And I did. I went home and I read what he said. Now, I remember I was freaking out. I was like, what in the world? I called my mom. Mother's Day, I'll mention my mother here. Uh, my mom, I called her. I said, Mom, uh, do you, you know, was I saved? Can you, can you like think of fruit that was in my life? You know, some kind of work, so, you know, something that I did that would show that I was a believer. And she said, she said, um, well, there was this mission trip we went on when you were 15. And, and I said, oh, Mom. <laughs> it was a confession time. I didn't tell her what I did. But I was like, I did some bad things on that mission trip. You know, I don't want to even talk about it. You know, so... I just don't want to tell you, but there was just things I should not have done on that trip, you know, because I wasn't a believer, you know. And when I heard that, I was like, if that's all she's got, there's no way I was saved. There's no way. And so I realized it was tough. I mean, I had to come to this place. I was, you know, I've only been saved for six years. I had to come to the place to realize my testimony, I've been telling it for six years wrong. And so I'm a youth pastor. I had to go back and tell them. And I did. I got up. I asked the pastor if I could preach. And I got up and I, I, I preached a sermon about uh, parable of the souls. And I, I talked about that parable because I actually had misunderstood it. That the second, you know, the seeds, one falls on the path, one falls on the uh, rocks, one falls in the weeds, and one bears fruit. Right? And I thought, well, those other two, they just weren't, you know, there yet. But that's not what, what they're teaching. Mark 4, it's not what he's teaching. He's saying, Jesus was saying, the only one that's real is the one that produces fruit. Those other two look a lot like it, but they are not real. They're fake. And the, the world will choke it out, the cares of the world, and the trials will just show that that's not real. And that's, that's the thing. It's, it had to be something real. It had to, be, it had to show forth something that was real. And from 21 on, I can tell you. I can tell you about things that God did. So I don't know where you are. I, I hope it challenges you to, to question that and look into that and see if you have a real authentic faith. For those of you who are a believer, as you hear this, you're probably, God's bringing stuff to your mind that, ah, yeah, you know, that was God that did that. Because those are the works I'm talking about. Those are things that God does in you. Not something that you go out and you just keep working and I'm going to do good things and I'm going to, you know, that's, that's not it. I don't work to make God happy with me. Remember, that's the gospel. Jesus made God happy with me. I can't. Jesus did. And Jesus is the only way that God's happy with me. I cannot. That's the way. And so the works that I do, I do because I love Him. Because he changed me. Because he made me different. So his works, he does them through me. 
Read Philippians chapter 2. It says that it's him that works in me in verse 13. To will and to do for his good pleasure. I still have to work at those things. But it's him who's giving me that will to do it. I could not have that without him. So those are the works that he's done. And then one other thing I just want to share with you that we have to think about this culture that we live in. There are way too many people who believe they know Jesus in this city. And they're going to hell. And they're going to face the wrath of God because they are not changed. And they think they are. And that is the saddest thing that I could think of. That they would know the sweet name of Jesus. And they would not know who he is. And that Jesus would say to them on that day, away from me, I I don't know who you are. And so, this is hard to say to someone. But it is the loving thing to say to someone. It's it's the caring thing to do. to, To tell someone, you know, where is your faith? How do you know that you're a believer? How do you know that God is in your life and that you've been changed? What what can you say about that? And challenge them on this works, just like Mike did to me. I'm so thankful for that. That someone loved me enough to go, that's not right. That's not what the Bible says. Maybe you should be that person for someone. So may God use this in your heart. Let's pray.